Welcome to Mom and Up. With your co-host, developmental psychologist, Dr. Marty Erickson, and Dr. Aaron Erickson, maternal child health specialist and nurse practitioner. Here's my grandma, Marty. And here's Aaron, my mom and mom. Welcome to Mom Enough. I'm Erin Erickson here with my mom, Marty, and today we're going to talk about a time in my life that I didn't love so much, although it doesn't have to be bad for everyone. And that is middle school. We're talking with Judith Warner, who is the author of eight nonfiction books, including the New York Times bestsellers, Perfect Madness, Motherhood in the Age of Anxiety, and Hillary Clinton, The Inside Story, plus the multiple award-winning We've Got Issues, Children and Parents in the Age of Medication. Her latest book, And Then They Stopped Talking to Me, Making Sense of Middle School, was published by Crown in early May. She is currently a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, specialized in women's leadership and work family policy, and is working with Square One Politics to develop a guide to running for office for women, people of color, and LGBT candidates. She lives in Washington, D.C., one of our favorite cities, with her husband and two daughters. So, uh, again, I'm very excited to have you here today, Judy, to talk about your book and middle school, something I would love to talk about but not relive. (laughs) (laughs) That's true for so many people. (laughs) Yes, it is. I I have mixed feelings about my middle school, well, my junior high experience as it was back when I was that age, back in the 1950s. Yikes, I hate to even say that. Um, and Judith, I wish we could talk about your work too. I, I'm I'm really intrigued with what you do. So we might have to uh, make another connection and have a conversation about some of the other things you're doing in your life. Both Aaron and I have spent a lot of time in Washington D.C. in past years, and uh, I did a lot of work on work family policy myself, working with um, with Vice President Gore back when he was in office, and. So uh, I think we have a number of things that we could connect on. But today we're going to talk about middle school. See, I'm, I'm trying to delay it a little bit, Erin, because I know it's stressful. <laughs> so, Judith, what inspired the book's title? I really like that. And then they stopped talking to me. What does that really mean? Well, you know, the book's title grew out of my own most painful experience during the middle school years, which also were not called middle school for me. I mean, I was in a K-8 through school, so they were just um, 7th and 8th grade, but they were, they were nonetheless memorable in the middle school way. And basically, I had an experience that many people who I interviewed also had had that I've now realized is very common, of coming into school one morning to discover that for no clear reason, no one was talking to me. My friend group had entirely stopped talking to me, and everyone else basically had as well. And it was it was really traumatic, you know, because it was the sense of being shunned for, and not knowing why, you know, everyone hating you and not knowing why. And it literally, you know, it just felt like the earth falling away beneath my feet. Um, and, it, you know, it was, it was agony. And I know now that this is an incredibly common experience that a lot of people have had when they're in generally 6th, 7th, or 8th grade, 
Um, sixth or seventh seems to be more frequent, although it happened to me in eighth. And so for me, that was where the title came from. The interesting thing that happened, though, when the cover was being designed is that uh, my editor quickly realized that the people designing the cover understood it to be from a parent's perspective rather than a middle schooler's perspective, the, the meaning being that their kids stopped talking to them at around that age and withdrew into their rooms and became really difficult, you know, the kind of stereotype of the difficult young adolescent. And there was this debate in the publishing house about what the title actually meant and, and then how to represent it on the cover. And what we realized was that the fact that you could take it on those two levels was actually a really good thing because it could then speak to a broader range of people and capture these two very different and yet both real aspects of early adolescence, you know, whether from the kid's perspective or from the parent's perspective. So that's, that's, basically, that's basically it. That's really interesting. And I, when I saw the title... I thought of the title as you described it initially, uh, that you showed up at school and no one was talking to you. And I was thinking about the concept of relational aggression, uh, Mm -hmm. which is often talked about a lot with regard to girls, although it's really pretty equally present in boys and girls, according to the latest research that I've seen. But anyway, that's what I thought about. But I had that second thought, too, that it also is about the kids pulling away. So um, that's sort of where my mind was on all of this. I want to just say too that you know I had a, an experience like that, although um, it was it was just one person, but she had been my closest friend, and all of a sudden in eighth grade, same age as you were, same grade, I went to school and this girl never spoke to me again, ever. And, you know, we went all the way through high school together, and she just dropped me like a hotcake, and I never knew why. I could not imagine, and, you know, wasn't aware that I had done anything. Fortunately, she didn't kind of take everybody else in the class along with her, so I I was still, you know, talking and being talked to in the ways I normally was with other people. But that was a huge loss and, and really very confusing. And years later, decades later, I was in a book group with friends here in Minnesota, where I did not grow up, and one of the women in my book group had grown up in the same town in Iowa that I grew up in, went to a different school, but we were reading a book, uh, I think it was The Perks of Being a Wallflower, and it prompted us to talk about those rejections we had experienced as kids of middle school age. And I told that story, and I mentioned the girl's name. And this other friend who grew up in Iowa said, she did that to everybody. And then she told me that she had had the same experience with her, and it would have been about a year after I had it. Apparently, they had become very close friends, and then she just dropped her. But it was amazing to see how both of us, I think we were in our 40s by then, um, you know, were still... had still kind of puzzled over that and still felt the rejection of that girl just dropping us like that. I wish I had spoken to you when I was interviewing people for the book, because I think that most of us, or at least many, many of us, have had that experience, usually at that point in our lives, in middle school to high school, 
but sometimes later in life as well. To be perfectly honest, yeah. I've had that experience in in adulthood too, and it is killer. And I guess to be even more honest, I have done it to other people uh, once or twice too, to my great shame. And I wonder, did you? Because there's nothing, especially as a kid, there's nothing more painful than that, you know. But even as an adult, to just be dropped from one day to the next without knowing why. Um, did you, in talking to this other woman, did you ever figure out why it was she did this to everyone? Like what caused it or what she was accomplishing or, or not accomplishing? You know, what brought well, it on? We speculated, and interestingly, we both are in mental health. You know, my, mm-hmm. my doctorate is in psychology, developmental psychology, and this woman was a, a psychiatric social worker. And so we, mm-hmm. we kind of speculated, but I think we, we mostly came to an agreement that this was something about her. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, what, whatever drove it or why she selected the people she selected to both embrace and then, and then drop, um, we, we didn't really have a clear explanation for it. But because she and I did go to the same high school um, and this other friend in my book group, you know, had gone to a different school, I've seen that she has never come to a high school reunion and has uh, our class has been, you know, fairly close. Quite a few of us have stayed in contact for 50 some years uh, post high school and um, and you know this now now woman in her 70s you know is uh, pretty detached from everyone that she went to school with so um, I, I don't know I don't know what the story was what all was going on in her life but um, at least I, I feel some comfort at this point in knowing that it was probably more about her than me, but as an eighth grader, I, you know, I assumed I, that I had done something terrible to deserve of course, it. Or, you know, of course, or that there's just something inherently wrong with you. Now you've hooked me on this story, and I'm wishing that you would invite her on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I, she'd I, respond to me, and she's not on Facebook. I have looked because I've been curious, but oh, anyway, God, I, I don't want funny. my story to take up our time yeah, here. Yeah, we but, want, we no, want but, to hear but about. I will just say I do think that these stories happen and and they always the person who's dropped always feels like it's about them right I am sure that it's about the dropper and that it has to do certainly at that age I think it has to do with insecurity with shifting identity and something about the person being dropped being something that the dropper can't integrate into whatever identity they want to be taking on at that time. Yeah. And it, and once again, it's not really, it's not a, a lack in the other person. It's some difficulty of pulling together an identity, um, some kind of insecurity that drives it. Well, I, I'm yeah, I, I certainly, yeah, you know, as a psychologist, sense. I certainly would agree with you. And uh, and as the droppy, <laughs> I'm uh, I, I'm very comfortable with that concept, too. Uh, and, uh, you know, wish that I could encourage every young girl or boy I know who goes through that experience in middle school to understand that, too. <laughs> So, Which I think is what, what your book yeah. is about. So, Aaron, yes, yes exactly. That's why I feel not bad about giving all the time to this because I think it just strikes to the heart of, first of all, what really drove me to write the book, which was trying both to deal with the incredibly painful feelings that came up for me as a middle school parent, watching my own daughters go through this kind of stuff and watching the dynamics 
play out particularly among among the parents, not not the kids really, but watching the parents get drawn in and replicate some of the same stuff, and also just monitoring my own level of distress as my daughters went through more or less typical things of this age. Um, one suffered much more than the other, and I combine them into one in the book for privacy, you know, to preserve right. their privacy. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I found that as they moved through elementary school, even starting slightly before middle school, I was kind of assailed by memories of my of things I had done as a kid that just weren't very nice. And that kind of tortured me. Um, and what was, what was interesting with some of that was when I mentioned it, let's say, to a, one of my daughters and was asked, why did you do that? I never could give a reason. It was a complete blank. And there was a woman I interviewed for the book who remembered herself as a mean girl, which is not the way I remember myself. I would just say that I was not necessarily actively nice, but rather than actively mean, but still. And she said that she, too, when she looked back at her behavior and why she acted the way she did, there was just a blank. And that fascinates me because I think it says a lot about what's going on with kids at that age and the fact that they really are not in touch with why they do things or even what they're feeling necessarily and why they need adult help because they need adults to provide them with the concepts that can make them make sense of their world in a more productive way, but also probably make lead them to behave better um, through understanding both themselves and other people in a more mature way. So, I mean, kind of along those lines of these memories, and as you two are talking, I have my own similar story of someone who was very mean and middle school and then randomly by my sister-in-law's younger sister had the same experience with the same person. So it was a very similar story, which is just so wild. But you say that our memories of middle school years can be indelible. How can our residual emotions from middle school exert a powerful force over us even as adults? And we've kind of alluded to this, but I'd like to hear more on that. Well, I, you know, Recent science, science from the brain science from the past two decades, basically, um, has shown that what we what we remember, what we know anecdotally, that these stories and these memories, you know, just kind of stay with us throughout the rest of our lives, is true and is true because our brains are particularly sensitive at that point in life. Our memories are extraordinarily sharp. And our minds are especially attuned to anything that has to do with our social experiences. That is what most, what's most important to us. Um, it's what is most salient to our brains, what we pay the most attention to, and then what we have the most emotion around. And then, and because of the importance and the degree of emotion that we invest in it, those memories become um, engraved into our brains that much more strongly. And I think that the, the emotions that come out of that time, and then in particular, the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves from that time, stay with us. And they form kind of our, our expectations 
moving forward of how people are going to react to us, you know, who we are, what's our place in the world. I think that they affect us way more than even we are aware that they do. Um, and I think that it's, it's problematic because the stories that we put together from that time are not necessarily accurate. I mean, the events that we remember, you know, we could be remembering them accurately, but our perceptions are partial. There's so much that we don't know about the world around us and about the people around us, right? And our, we have a kind of tunnel vision around ourselves that's just typical of, of being that age. We also don't have the kind of, you know, intellectual sophistication to understand very well what's going on with other people or what the larger context of, of other people's lives or our lives are, too. And so, you know, you move forward with stories that are based on partial memories and partial understandings of, of a situation. And as a result, I think that those stories very often don't serve us well as we get older, unless we have the opportunity, which is pretty rare. I mean, I had the opportunity by working on this book, and I think by extension, my daughter, who had had such a hard time, had that opportunity, too, um, to really rethink it and come to a more mature understanding, which is such a relief, frankly, and I think can lead us to have much better tools for understanding ourselves and the people around us um, moving forward. I know that was true for me. There was, oddly enough, in my 50s, a lot of growth that happened for me as a result of doing the research for this book. Mm. Well, I think uh, I think you're not alone in that. And the more we can learn and understand, the more we can understand ourselves ultimately. So I, I wonder what you could tell us about how recent research and an expanded diagnostic vocabulary for adolescent psychology has changed the way we view middle schoolers. And, and I think, you know, you, it's very common to run into um, very strong opinions and very strong stereotypes about who middle schoolers are. Uh, so what are we learning from research and, and this kind of expanded understanding of adolescent psychology? I'm so thrilled that you're asking me this question because I spent a lot of time on this while researching the book and kind of went down a lot of rabbit holes because it really fascinates me. And most of that actually had to come out of the book um, because nobody else was so fascinated. Um, and so it's, <laughs> it, unfortunately, it's going to be a little rustier in my mind than it might have been if it had stayed in. But what, what's really interesting is that there's always been a disconnect between the way that experts view kids this age and the way that people popularly do. Um, there's always been, for as long as adults have had to spend extended periods of time with kids this age, which really didn't happen before the mid to late 19th century, um, it, it, you know, adults have disliked them, <laughs> found them really difficult. You know, parents found them tough to be around because they went from being sweet and devoted and adorable to, you know, to looking at them critically, to being moody, um, to just in general not being kind of adoring children, um, and also becoming sexual beings, which was always very, very uncomfortable um, for the adults in their lives. So you had a lot of that kind of negativity. At the same time, you, from the point at which 
these kids started to be studied in a, in a somewhat systematic way, which was also the end of the 19th, early 20th century, you had experts who were taking a much, much broader view and who were seeing the great potential of the age and the great strengths of the age at the same time, um, even though there, that kind of dark negative view existed also, especially at that time, because anything having to do with sexuality, you know, was still really yucky, stigmatized, bad. But, I mean, from the very start, experts looking at this age group recognized that they had these great intellectual capabilities, really new and different intellectual capabilities than did the kids who were, you know, just younger, that they were passionately interested in the world, had a great sense of, of justice and injustice, and were really capable of new, exciting, creative things. Um, that dichotomy has existed from the late 19th century all the way up through our day with many educators, you know, like yourself, what you, you said to me, actually, I guess, before we started our interview, who work with them, who choose to work with them, loving this age group, loving working with them for all of those reasons, and then other adults looking at them kind of with horror, and much of that horror stemming from their own bad memories or from the various kinds of discomfort that kids this age cause in adults. And you see those different strands running through the 20th century um, field of psychology, basically, of how these kids were considered. You know, Anna Freud and um, other Freudians of, of sort of the 30s through mid-century saw them as incredibly difficult patients, you know, impossible to work with, um, enormous stress and strain for the therapist, um, just sort of, you know, wretched creatures. Um, and, the, and the belief formed that this was a period of enormous storm and stress and difficulty and horror, etc. And then, you know, at some point in the 60s, some voices started rising up to say, you know what, maybe it's really not so bad. I mean, it's not necessarily universally so awful for everybody, and not all the kids are that terrible. Albert Bandura, notably, wrote a piece um, saying that, you know, if you go up to somebody and say maybe they're not so terrible, you're likely, he used the expression, you're likely to get a punch in the face because it's so firmly believed. But that, in fact, research that he had actually done, because there wasn't much research that was actually done with with anybody in the um, Freudian-dominated era, you know, when um, he did some actual research interviewing them and looking at their actual experiences and attitudes and found that, you know, this time of life was not universally so terrible, that there was a fair bit of variation. And then in the 70s and 80s, as a new generation of researchers came in and started to look at kids more in the context of their social surroundings, of their environment, and also started to displace just basically white men, white middle-class men, as the center of all meaning and all experience. They really saw that you couldn't generalize so neatly once you started to take into account first girls, immigrants, African-Americans, you know, that you came up with a lot of different kinds of experiences. And so you came to more of the point where 
I think I'm writing from, where they were looking at trying to identify kind of what was universal, what was what was hardwired and built in, and what had to do with growing up in a certain society at a certain time in certain kinds of families, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we were able then to have a much more nuanced way of looking at and talking about these kids and, and talking to them and dealing with them. And all of that had this additional push, push right around the turn of the 20th century when there were new advances in brain science that were made possible, these discoveries made possible by large-scale studies using MRI and fMRI data that were able to show changes in brain development that happened right starting right before puberty and moving through the teen years. And one thing that was so fascinating to me in doing this, I mean, talk about rabbit holes and my inherent nerdiness, is that what the brain science of the turn of the 20th century showed was what scientists at the turn of the 20th believed but couldn't prove which is that there were changes in the brain that didn't have to do with overall size and growth, because they knew that kids' brains hit their adult sizes earlier, but had to do with connectivity, connectivity and myelination, um, how different parts of the brain communicated, and that all of that somehow had something to do with higher-level thinking. That was proven 100 years later. So I just find that absolutely fascinating. And what's frustrating, though, is how little of that ever trickles out into public opinion. You know, even as the brain science became better known, it was still talked about as the crazy teen brain. The crazy teen brain explained those crazy, wretched teenagers. And that's really not what the scientists were showing. But that's how it got popularized. So that that's really fascinating. And I think the other thing that's fascinating is that our own experiences of something, middle school, for example, in this case, uh, are not predictive of other people's experiences. And I think it's really easy for parents who had a difficult experience in middle school, like my mom or me, to kind of make assumptions about even if, I mean, now it's great that the research is coming out to support all these other great things about that age and, and brain development and interest. And it helps broaden our perspective or maybe create a greater openness that it could be a good time. And I never really voiced with my kids that that was a difficult time for me. Really, I mean, now they're in in high school, so I can talk about it now. But I didn't want my experience. I wanted to be open to them having a different experience. And I, I believe that if I had kind of teed them up for it to be bad that it, it they might have been looking for that and and I didn't want to do that and so I, I'm intrigued by kind of having this conversation and maybe changing our collective beliefs can really shift um, what that experience is for kids as well and I wish we could talk more we have so much uh, t- there'd be so much to talk about with this subject it's so fascinating And um, we hope you'll join us again. But thank you so much for joining us today. Um, We want to encourage our listeners as well to check out your book, And Then They Stop Talking to Me, Making Sense of Middle School. Uh, Today we're talking with Judith Warner. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on and for these wonderful questions. I'd love to speak with you again. 
Wonderful. We'll do that. And thanks to you for tuning in to Mom Enough. We hope you'll tune in again next week. Content copyrighted by Marty and Aaron Erickson. All rights reserved. Visit momenough.com for an archive of all Mom Enough shows and many free downloadable resources on child development, parenting, and maternal health and well-being. Do you think I'll have a show called Kid Enough someday?